0: Well, today's show features two Bay Area guys talking about Bay Area things. But don't worry, the whole show is not about the 415. We do realize that there's a whole other world out there, and it doesn't just revolve around us. Sort of. I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out.
1: Round and round and round I seem to go would I ever stop? Nobody knows. I was spinning on an endless carousel. In a state of shock, that there was a wind.
0: the music of my guest today on the program, Bill Champlin. Let me tell you a little bit about Bill Champlin. Alright, so the Oakland-born Bill Champlin's high school band, The Opposite Six, became Sons of Champlin in the mid-60s. And if you're familiar with rock and roll history, being in a band in the Bay Area in the mid-60s, well, that was pretty much the sweet spot. Sons of Champlin shared Bills with the Grateful Dead, the band, Jefferson Airplane, and Country Joe and the Fish. And if you're familiar with rock and roll history, uh, I'm guessing they had a really good time doing that. A gifted pianist, vocalist, guitarist, and songwriter, it didn't take long for everyone to want the services of Bill Champlin. After a handful of excellent albums with Sons of Champlin, Bill left the band, and from there, his list of musical accomplishments is so extensive, if they were listed on LinkedIn, LinkedIn would break. I can't list them all here, so let me give you a partial list, okay? In his career, Champlin has worked with REO Speedwagon, David Foster, Barry Manilow, Elton John, Al Jarreau, Amy Grant, Patti LaBelle, The Tubes, and Boz Skaggs. And he won a couple of Grammys in the process. One for co-writing After the Love Has Gone, which was made massive by Earth, Wind, and Fire. And another for co-writing Turn Your Love Around, which George Benson made an eternal classic. That would be enough for anyone, but Champlin, well, he just kept going. He joined Chicago in 1982, and their seismic albums Chicago 16, Chicago 17, and Chicago 19, well, they had a bit of a pattern going there, found Champlin co-writing and singing on tracks like Hard Habit to Break and Look Away. I know I said it before, but I feel compelled to remind you, partial list. Champlin has appeared on hundreds of songs that are still blasted across the airwaves every single day. Put it this way, whenever you walk into Whole Foods and music is playing, chances are Bill Champlin is on one of those songs. Champlin has put out 10 solo albums, and his new one, "Living for Love, is out at the end of this month. It's his first album in 10 years, and Champlin himself describes it as the best record he's ever made. Hard to argue with that. It's a stunner. It features incredible arrangements, stirring vocals, and poignant and powerful songwriting. The fact is, Bill Champlin has never sounded better. So let's talk to him, shall we? Here's me and Bill Champlin having a conversation right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast.
2: Okay, and I've been, you know, this this whole pandemic thing's kind of throwing throwing uh, monkey wrenches into everybody's lives. But you know, we deal with what we deal with, and move forward. A thing is, I was I was checking out, is that the main move is that uh, there's going to be more albums out in 2021 than there were babies nine months after the New York blackout. <laughs> it's going to be. Oh, did you have an album oh, that was a baby boomer? You know what I mean. So like everybody just went to their pro tools rigs and started going to work. You know.
0: But Bill, isn't it kind of like now? It's almost like the '60s, where, where like bands were putting out records every six months.
2: Yeah,
1: I think. Well, in
2: some ways, yeah, I think uh, you know, I think a lot of what it is is that the uh, uh, you know, there's a lot of of kind of live stuff that are go- that's going out and that kind of thing. And the uh, let me check and make sure I'm cool here. We all right? Everything? Yeah, you're cool. Yeah, uh, the, uh, you know, the basic, just all the basic crap that's going on the, uh, uh, you know, just, you know, knocking off, knocking off a quick record or, or just doing it with live, you know, live shows and live tapes and stuff like that. So, I mean, I don't usually, I haven't done a solo album in over 10 years, but the way I do albums is, uh, you know, I produce the hell out of it. I get way deep into it. Yeah. So, and then you don't want to do more, more than every 10 years with it when you do it like that. It's an awful lot of work, but I'll tell you, it kept me busy during that period of time. During this whole, since March, I guess. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Is there, is there now a temptation to hurry that process a little bit and not be as fastidious?
2: Well, I think, that, you know, I've, I've, you know, somebody said, Hey, you're going to do another record. I said, I'm not going to, I don't think I, I can't imagine doing another right at the moment anyway I'm still pooped out from doing this one can't imagine doing one like this but I I can't imagine you know bass player drummer piano one vocal you know cut it on Tuesday and Wednesday afternoons you know Uh, which is an app kind of an album I've never done before so for me it'd be a new thing to do but I usually write when I write I'm kind of always writing for bigger you know bigger stuff and then when i get into carving guitars i go well i said why don't i just double it (laughs) (laughs) let me do the hard guitars let me do four of them you know and i i I can overdo it pretty easily you know nothing's worth doing that isn't worth overdoing. (laughs)
0: right right well i always think of brian wilson in terms of like stacking vocals i've never thought about stacking guitars oh yeah yeah that must be fun
2: i mean jay gray and then like you know wire choir stuff i'm not that good a guitar player I'm a, I think I'm a really good rhythm player and I, I got a solo or two, just a few, you know what I mean? <laughs> nothing, nothing to jump up and down about, but uh, you know, so I bring in, I usually try to bring in, I mean, I had uh, actually a guy from up north uh, from Marin County, Tal Morris played a solo on, on one of the songs. Uh, Bruce Geich played one. I mean, he sent me a track uh, that Tamar and I immediately wrote this, wrote the stuff on the track and it was George Hawkins, who's no longer with us. George uh, died a couple of years ago. He's one of the best bass players ever, and and singers. I mean, he was with he was with the Zoo. He was with Loggins for you know ten years, twelve years, something like that. Uh, and uh, so he was on it. Benny Colaiuta was was playing drums on that one song. So uh, uh, you know, I just kind of look at it. And it's like there's a lot of a lot of different stuff going on. And uh, and and Bruce's guitar playing, at least at the time, was slamming. I mean, he was just re- always played the right notes. Wasn't wasn't all trying to shred and show everybody how fast he can play (laughs) yeah wasn't a shred you know bruce was never a shredder he was always a you know
0: melodic guitar player also subtlety is is a powerful thing right
2: absolutely yeah you know i mean melody i think is is really kind of what it is and and somebody said it i think i don't know it might have been tris or tristan Bowden said something he said man that guy plays a solo he tells a story and you can't tell a story right away with thirty-second notes, you know. And you say, great, you've just you've just told a story about a chainsaw. <laughs> yeah, you know, and it's great that you can do that. But you know, I've always kind of associated with guitar players that have the chops to do that, but usually, as a rule, kind of stay away from the shred. And go after the go after the melodies and trying to tell a story. Starting starting solo. If you finish up a solo, you know, doing a bit of chainsaw—that's cool. But if you've if you've built up to it, you know, and uh, some guys are really really good at that,
0: you know. I mean, how much does telling a story about a chainsaw have to do with also with youth? I mean, it seems like it's something you would do when you're sort of an adrenalized twenty-two-year-old too. Well, yeah, well, I'm not. <laughs> By any means. <laughs> Keith Olson used to say,
2: look at me, I- I'm sick. <laughs> That's pretty funny, dude. Uh, you know, when you're younger, you. I think, I think a lot of it is competitive. You know, when you're at that age, you're really trying to compete with other guys at play. I want to show you I can play as fast and, and frantic as you. and. And do all the little tricks and stuff, and I can play more like Eddie Van Halen than you do. And you know, there's a, I think competition sort of goes with a younger age than it does with the rest of it. I mean, at this point in the game, I'm, I'm not competing with anybody because I, I, the older you get, the more you realize there are guys out there that kick your ass. <laughs> yeah, and, and and if that's what's making you go, you've you've lost the game before you start.
0: Were you competitive in the older days? Were you? I think vocally I might have been. There
2: was a, you know, I was trying to do a lot of different stuff that I don't think necessarily needed to be done that much. And I've, I've kind of come back I everybody said, Hey man, just, just sing the melody. And I've just kind of realized you sing the melody, but you put some stuff on it. That, that you can learn from Aretha Franklin. I mean, she, she always, I mean, a friend of mine said at one time, a drummer that played with the sons, he said Aretha would just sing the song and then get to the tag and it seems like she's holding it down. They get to the tag and kind of let it up and then she lets it fly a little bit, you know, shows what she can do. And uh, and God, she could do anything. She was an amazing singer.
0: What about someone like Sam Cooke who was always in the pocket? He, he always seemed like he was untroubled by, uh, he was so smooth. Uh, what about someone like, that, a singer like that? Man, you're born with a voice like that. What are you gonna do,
2: try to sing like somebody else? I mean, he just had such a beautiful pipes. It's funny, and my teacher, he didn't know it at the time, but my teacher actually was Lou Rawls. I mean, I paid very close attention to Lou's early records. And it was the same thing with him, but Lou had this back phrasing thing that was always so cool. I mean, when everybody heard D'Angelo the first time, everybody said, oh man, listen to how far back he is. I said, check out some early Lou records. You wanna hear where that comes from? and Lou and I kind of became friends quite a few years later you know I mean after I was I mean I get come home from school in high school and just put on his album his first two albums and
0: learn them. I never thought about the link between Lou Rawls and D'Angelo but there really there is one.
2: Yeah it's kind of the same kind of thing I mean it's way different eras of music and everything but back their back here is where it kind of lived you know and D'Angelo's I, I mean he's more I mean among musicians anything, he, he, he was spoken about more because of his back phrasing than anything and he was a great piano player and he's a great singer
0: and great great writer I mean forget about it that guy's a bad boy yeah um, can you explain to the listeners what and also to me what, what back phrasing is technically
2: well, you know, a lot of times, especially in rock, and, you know, in rock, a lot of the singers get on the front end of it, you know, it's almost like they're ahead of the band. And, you know, I've worked with that, you know, done a lot of singing and a lot of stuff in studios and, uh, and uh, they, they get, the, you know, get back here a little bit, just, you know, relax, you're, you're not in that much of a hurry to get to the next beat. That's why one of the reasons, okay, backphrasing, I'd, I'd say not, not as a singer, but as a player, probably one of the best known backphrasers is Jim Keltner on drums. I mean, <laughs> listen to the like Traveling Wilberries or some of the Tom Petty things that, that Jim played on. So, bap, there was no hurry to get to BAP, you know? BAP. He, he held it was as far back as you could get without dragging. Mm. And that's, you know, I mean, I talked to Jim one time. I said, well, where'd you get this back phrasing thing? He says, two different drummers, Ringo Starr and the and uh, ACDC's drummer. Both those guys had a tendency to just get on the back end of it a little bit. And I think if you listen to some of Sam Cook's early records, you, f- you see the bass player is a little on the front the drummer is a little on the back. And it, and it sets up this sort of tension that makes things really go, you know what I mean? Procaro was really good at that, you know. He was. Uh, Greg Matheson was doing a session with him, and Greg realized that Jeff was playing just on the just a teeny bit back. So Greg went back and played with him there, and then on a break, Jeff said, "Don't do that. Just stay where, stay on the, stay on the groove, and I'm gonna just put the back on it. If you're here, then we're just dragging." You know. So it's it's that it's it's being aware enough of it to know that there's that there's that tension that happens when you're when it's
0: just about this much away from each other some
2: of my favorite records
0: got that going on yeah and that's never accidental right in other words like a player knows what they are they know they're doing that
2: yeah a lot of times i mean sometimes you get drummers that just drag (laughs) yeah it's not the one that you want to have but it's the one that you do you know so you go well i i played with a drummer once a really sweet guy nice dude i think it was in puerto rico yeah it was in puerto rico and uh, and he, he started singing you know he learned the songs and it was great he knew the arrangements and really well but the minute he started singing you could see him singing the words while he was playing then the time started doing this and finally i said we, we got plenty of singers on the stage just play and boom he was right back up to the groove i went well that that was an interesting thing just don't sing while you're doing it because it it just kind of was enough to to
0: put the brakes on and that one note that you gave him changed it. Changed it. Changed everything, basically.
2: Probably, I said, "Man, you know, you have a tendency to drag it a little bit when you're singing. So
0: just don't." Yeah. <laughs> how is singing it is somebody else. How are you with giving notes like that, and how are you with getting notes like that?
1: Well, you
2: know, I mean, it's it. It comes under the heading of criticism, and uh, you know, a lot of people don't particularly like it. There are moments where I don't. Yeah. But if it's if it's constructive criticism. I if if I'm not listening real quick, I'm remembering and I'll and I'll think about it and go well. You know, you might be right. You know, I might be singing it wrong or I might be doing it wrong. Usually, I'd, I mean, I'm a headstrong kind of guy. Otherwise, I wouldn't be an artist. I wouldn't be making albums and producing and the things that I do. But. Uh, uh, I, I try to, I mean, it's like, for instance, when I put together uh, a band, after, say I've got a, I've, I've got a record, I've done it, I've done most of the parts myself, and I get a band to start learning it, I'll say, give them a, a CD of what I did and go, this is what I did, beat it, uh, make, it make it better, make it your own, put, it, put your own take on it. I don't believe a song's ever done being arranged. You know, I think I think for a while if you if you got a record out and, and it's somewhat of a hit or something, you gotta kinda play it like the record for a little while. But after 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 a bit, it's a good idea. It's just say, man, let me put another feel on it. Let me let me throw another thing on it. And it keeps it fresh for you. So so you don't have that thing that we all see and, and we all know it. Very very few talk about it. But you see bands on the stage and you can see they're just bored. Yeah. You know. So a little something maybe not a lot but just a little something extra. like with me I'll I'll sing you know I got busted with Chicago a lot of times like I got busted for not singing the melody and I said no 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 I sang the melody that I sang I might not have sung the melody you came up with I did for the first I did for the signature to, to express it and get get the the melody over get it, get the thing across the quote mark this is the song and then kind of go off on it a little bit have a little more fun with it because it keep, I don't know, it keeps me interested, keeps me from being bored.
0: Yeah, I mean, so you think of art as a kind of living thing, which is always changing.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. Let it let it change. I know with uh, with those guys, for a long time they were a, a, kind of allowing things to grow and do things, and then at one point I think they all went, no, 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 we want to go back to playing it just like the record. And at that point of the game, it was like, huh? So yeah, sort of boring here
0: <laughs> yeah yeah so it's interesting I mean I, I've interviewed so many people in my life and no one's ever admitted that musicians do get bored on stage just doing the same thing yeah but you can
2: look up there and see it a lot yeah you, you see a lot of bands that do that and you can you can you you know you can pick them off a mile away you know it's that's just the way it is you know
0: yeah well so for you as a musician, it's like, let's keep challenging ourselves to bring something new to this piece of work.
2: Yeah. And I think, and I think a lot of pieces of work, I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of songs. I mean, there, at one point there were songs that were written and the songs were just a vehicle for a bass drum, <laughs> you know, yeah. talking about the like, disco era and stuff like that. Yeah. And at those point of the game, at that point of the game, your, your lyrics weren't particularly important. You know they're sort of you know they're important so that people recognize what the song is, but uh you know i mean with with this new album that I've done, I just I'd read something somewhere and read it or heard it, or I can't remember you know somehow I just became aware of it. somebody said if it isn't personal, it isn't art mm-hmm. and I kind of went whoa that's that's pretty deep, I mean it might have been. I can't even remember. It's like a you know a, an old writer, a, a writer who's long since been gone. But I love what he said. If it isn't personal, it isn't art. And uh, and so this album, I kind of dug in a little bit. I I said some stuff that, you know, people usually don't say in a in a song. You know, although it's funny, I was doing a songwriting demo, for singing a song for a guy one time, and he had the word juxtaposition in it, and I said this isn't a song word, you know? Is there another way, something else? I, but then it's juxtaposition. <laughs> it's like, what do you mean? It's just not a song word. And I I was telling that story to a, a, a writer I was writing a song with, a guy named Steve Diamond, great songwriter. And uh, and I said, I said, you know, juxtaposition just doesn't b- belong in a song. And he said, well, maybe a rap song, you know, like, but baby, it's juxtaposition. <laughs> I said, it went... Yeah, there's a guy there's a reason you're a good writer
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean you would almost not even think that like a, like a word like superstition you almost wouldn't think would work but that totally works obviously oh
2: absolutely it took off right
0: but juxtaposition sounds a little bit like you're like a manual like it's coming from a manual of some kind
2: exactly yeah right <laughs> this after you turn the machine on and go to user <laughs> bank one go to juxtaposition you know or something' it's yeah. like God, I need this like I need a whole I remember when I got the Roland or the uh the Yamaha DX7. I think it was Yamaha that made them, Yeah. And there was a a book like this with all the algorithms and just deep, deep stuff. And the very last page said, and if none of this works, turn it off and turn it back on again. <laughs> it's like one time I was working with David Foster and I said to him, I said, Man, you know, he. I think, I think we're using a Lin 9000, using some kind of sequencer that had an autocorrect on it. I said, "Man, I'd like to put about the last 20 years of my life through autocorrect." And David immediately chimed in with, "Yeah, and quantize it to the nearest three commandments." <laughs> I just, All right. Well,
0: <laughs> that's a memorable moment, you know. Yeah, there's a phrase for a rock song.
2: <laughs> I'm not sure what. I'm not sure if people understand what quantize is, but you no. know.
0: Um, It's interesting what you said because the idea that if it's not personal, it's not art, you sort of adhering to that idea, um, you and I can both admit that's a fairly simple precept. It's amazing to think that you almost had to be reminded of that.
2: Well, I think a lot of songwriters over a period of time went, well, people don't want to hear about you, and I said, well, okay, I understand that, but there's a possibility that you can get it you can write it well enough to, so that people don't have to know this is about you but it, right. it but when you're performing it you can you know it is i mean there's a song on my on my new album that that's really about my, my older son who passed away a couple of years ago and it took a, that's a, i've never taken that long to write a song it took 2 years to pull that one out uh. but it's personal it's deeply personal and there's a lot of other lyrics. I mean, there's a single that I think we're going to put out uh, called uh, uh, "Reason to Believe," which was the one that this was the track that Bruce Guy sent me. And I and I realized that you know Bruce has had some medical problems, and as have I. And uh, and we were kind of carried through some pretty nasty moments by our you know respective wives, you know, by the women that we were by the people we were with, and people who loved us and who we love and i just went there's a you know there's a reason to believe you saved my ass from dying or 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 for instance if you know and there's one on there about uh you know drinking too much you know but there's a way of putting that you know there was one song i think it's going to be on a on the uh on the japanese a bonus track on a japanese version of the record it's called slave to the medicine and it's really about i mean i'm pretty obvious what that's about yeah. It's it's really kind of a hey, you're you become a slave to the medicine. Do something about it, you know what I mean? Cuz I mean, Lord knows we're all in the music business. We've all gone through the 70s and 80s, so we've all seen a lot of that going on. Yeah. You know, in our own lives and others. So, and and how how p- different people have dealt with that. I mean, I don't think a lot of people are still, like for instance, still doing blow. I don't think there are a lot of people still around, you know? Yeah. It's it's It was, uh, I, I guess it's going on. They tell me there's a whole new new substrata of cocaine going on these days. I'm going, really? I thought that was over with. You know, <laughs> you know I went, went all on up to doing crack and freebase yeah. and stuff like that. That pretty, I thought that pretty much wiped the slate pretty clean because it was, that stuff was pretty nasty. A lot of fortunes went right down the drain with that one.
0: Yeah, and and some people who had made a pretty good fortune were forced to stay out there in you know touring nonstop, and when they really should have been just not doing that.
2: Yeah, you know, you know when 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 I joined Chicago's, uh, Peter Sutera said something great. He says, "Man, if we can, if we, I don't want to go out more in about twenty three weeks." and then take at least a week break because after 3 weeks the band starts to sound boring the, the in the second week of the 3 weeks the band's smoking like a freight train but you know once you've kind of hit that point especially when you've really kind of got to do the same songs over and over again so it's just sometimes the, the song will, will read a lot better if you uh, if you take a break from it even if it's only you know a week 10 days off and that's kind of how we did it for a long time you know, at least when at least when Peter was in the band, I mean he was you know I think they talked him into, well, can we go twenty four days so we get that one extra weekend? He said, yeah, but he said the 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 idea really is that like if guys are drinking, they're drinking too much by then, uh we need a, we need a breather just to, in order to make the music sound better so this this uh quarantines and lockdowns, there's your breather,
0: there's your breather. There's your breather. I mean, yeah. He's an interesting guy. I think of him as sort. Of, he's become in my brain a little bit of an, of an enigma in rock and roll, in the sense that what you're saying is really interesting because he had an eye on self-preservation as a fairly young guy. I mean, when you're mm-hmm. that story you're telling me, he, that must have been in, in the you know mid '80s, early '80s. He must have. He was probably pretty young. Yeah, was,
2: I think I joined them in '81. We start. I started playing with them live in '82. Right. And but they had gone through some pretty serious hard burn. To where they were just on the road forever. Yeah. Uh, earlier on, in some of their earlier eras, eras, and and Peter was more aware. I mean, you, you know, we we I was there when you know we saw another rise when Foster David Foster came into the ball game. Things started to pop again. You know, he and I kind of put a, put a little new new thing on that band. You know. Yeah. And uh, and one or two records hit. I mean, hard to say. I'm sorry. Off of 16 was a big hit. Uh, 17 had a handful of pretty big hits and uh, so that got us back out on the road again and uh, and that's when peter said i don't want to do we've we've been through this before we've done this before i don't i want to not make the mistakes we made before where we just burn ourselves to a crisp here they are Chicago no they look more like charcoal briquettes on the stage with, yeah, with <laughs> horns you know like just burn out you know at an early age and, and he wanted to avoid that and he was he was really smart about it he, you know he he, he was with the guy that remembered everybody else was so happy to be back in the ball game they didn't care what we did but you know I mean those those guys before I got with them man they did tours they never saw home for you know six, seven months
0: right right. But he was very forward thinking in terms of self you know preservation and absolutely i I haven't seen that guy in in a long time in terms of what he's been doing but he seems like he's very comfortable doing what he's doing
2: yeah he's you know this year he's kind of cooled it yeah he's not he's not on the road that much he said i talked to him you know uh, actually right before the pandemic stuff came down he says yeah i i just kind of don't want to open up any more uh, any more suitcases for a while i'm just uh, you know uh, and and you know he's he's not young but he's very well preserved i mean he's he keeps takes pretty good care of himself and uh, what a seriously great voice beautiful set of pipes yeah and he keeps it he keeps it smoking i mean before i met him he was smoking he was drinking he was doing all that all of it gone you know God somewhere along the line he just went in you know, some i read somewhere i think nancy sinatra said in the early days of sinatra i mean yeah he'd party he'd go out drinking and smoking and doing the whole thing but when he was about to do a tour <clears throat> or uh, or an album he'd he'd kind of go into training for a couple of months mm. you know cut out the booze cut out the other stuff and just really get his his uh, instrument in shape you know so that he sang as well as he did and
0: lord knows he did yeah he did how were you in terms of self-preservation? Were you mindful of that for yourself? I smoked like a chimney for way too long. I was okay. one of
2: those singers that, you know, I kind of came up out of the blues thing. And then, and then I, then I realized that, you know, I was a piano player and a guitarist and I started g- getting carried forward musically, kind of out of just, you know, three chord blues. I loved, you know, I loved R&B. I loved everything when I was younger. But the whole time I was drinking and smoking. So, I, you know, in '85, I bailed. I got sober, bailed on that. And uh, uh, maybe ten years later, I got, you know, I finally quit smoking. I was a bad smoker. And uh, and you know, up to that point, it hadn't it hadn't hurt me. I mean, I, I could I could sing through anything. And right. then at one point, I went to sing, and I just went, I don't have a lot of breath here. I think maybe it's time to bail on this. You know, typically I push it right to the edge. You know, Bobby Kimball said something once, one time and it just stuck with me. He says, I don't remember the last time I almost did anything.
0: <laughs> a pretty smart thing to say. <laughs> well, there is something to be said about about looking forward and, and preserving your, your tools um like i look at someone like axel rose who really was just phenomenal in 1987 but but the voice doesn't seem like it's there anymore the way it used to be i mean there there's still some power there but it it seems compromised um, and maybe that's something that that we don't think about when we're younger and and i i certainly wouldn't fault anyone for that uh,
2: well Axel's, Axel's style a call for a certain kind of singing that actually the style itself it isn't really the smartest thing to do with your pipes you know, I remember there was a there was a guitar player, a young guitar player. Uh uh remember had Lie to Me, Lie to Me, and I always forget his name, Johnny uh, Johnny Lang? Yeah, Johnny Lang. Yeah. And when he started, he was, I think his, when his first record he was in his teens. I I got his album. I yeah. loved his playing, I loved his, his songs, but he was really hitting hard. You could just see that sometimes hitting really hard hits tape really cool. You know, and if that becomes your style. You're gonna hurt yourself if you keep doing it like that. There's a certain point, and I and I and I saw I, the first time I heard him, I went, he keeps singing like this. He's gonna have some problems somewhere down the line. Mm-hmm. And at some point in the game, he really pulled it back, got his thing where he he was singing just as good as he was before it, and without quite the, <clears throat> you know what I mean? I mean, listen to some of these. Uh, you know, tune into satellite radio, Octane and every singer is, dah, 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 dah. I can't understand one of the words, and I'm going, well, this is, you know, this is working for this track, and the man, the drummer, and bass player, and guitar player is smoking, but this guy's not going to be able to do this for too much longer, because it's just, it's, it's sort of like when you're singing style, it does the same thing to your voice, as going to a football game and yelling, run, it's it, and that's kind of you know you got to be careful with that. I mean, we used to have some jokes where we were doing Sam Kinnison, uh stuff before we went on the stage. Say it, say it, you know, out of the uh, back to school uh, movie. Yeah, and we just got j- jokingly were doing that, but it was me and and two of the horn players, <laughs> and I they went on, they could go ahead and play. I went out, my voice was shot from playing games backstage, so what? You know, you got to be a little bit careful and not do stupid things.
1: It makes me happy to see A love that is free From the games everyone wants to play I feel the same when the night turns to day And I see it sometimes, sometimes Then I'm so happy to be Half of just you and me Cause a friend always knows what to say When the end seems like one
0: By the way mentioned you mentioned acdc how about someone like brian johnson who i mean i don't understand how he does what he does that was, gonna, I, was that I, I
2: know people that know him They said he's an absolute sweetie pie a nice yeah. guy in the world but that sound it just seems like a squeak it doesn't even really even seem like singing to me you know bon scott another story i mean he was using his full voice in that range and, and brian just it's you know you hear he's this is you say this about brian two notes you know who it is so there's something to be said about that there's certain singers out there peter cetera two notes you know who it is yeah mike mcdonald of course two notes you know who it is and there's something really cool about that you know axel rose at some level i mean a couple of notes and you know it's axel I always thought he sounded a little bit like Ethel Merman, but that's just what that's me. There's no business like show. Oh no, Bill, you you, you. It's, the, it's the Ethel Merman of rock and roll. Hey, those guys are still slamming. Once Slash got back to playing with them, man, they they tore. They've been on the road tearing it up. Yeah, up while there was the road, you know.
0: Well, now no one's going to think of Guns N' Roses in the same way again. <laughs> they're going to
1: think of Ethel yeah.
0: <laughs> I Merman. Listen to I mean, if you listen to him closely,
2: he's, oh, sweet child of mine, there's no business. <laughs> That's what man. meant. This guy sounds like Ethel Merman. <laughs> but holy smokes, did it work.
0: <laughs> it worked. <laughs> you know? Yeah, it did work. It, it did work. Uh, how are you in terms of your chops? I mean, do you it's good for people to hear that say, like, do you play every day? How do you, how do you keep getting better? Cause that that is the whole goal, right? Is just keep getting better, keep improving.
2: Well, I think for me getting better, really a lot of it has to do with arrangement and a lot of it has to do with, I wanna try to put myself into this and not just do another session. Right. You know, I think for a long time, I was just making a living doing background vocals. that's oozing and ahs for rent, <laughs> what I used to call it. And I did a million background dates and and all that and i I kind of became sort of sort of aware of how to how to hit it and make sure it's really clean so I can double it, you know, yeah, make sure I end everything in the same place. and I'm looking at those things rather than am I bringing the song? you know, am I actually bringing any personality to the song and a lot of ways you don't want that from your background singers you want that from the lead singer so at this point in the game yeah i can do backgrounds in a new york minute that's it's like second nature to me but really bringing off a vocal that feels like i'm really you know i mean really try to access the words while i'm singing them and know what they mean and see if that adds anything to it so that's kind of what i'm working on now it's what really what i was working on with the album was really try to get some be as good as i am but still try to get some you know human uh connection in it because you know a lot of music these days it doesn't seem to touch people mm. it impresses the hell out of people but in terms of touching people that's why you know can you imagine jimi hendrix with autotune It just doesn't make any sense. No, no, no. Somebody asked, I was was hanging with Jason, the chef, one day, and somebody said, How did you guys tune back in the day when you were doing, you know, Chicago records and, you know, all solo albums and stuff like that? I said, We recorded it. He said, Well, I know, but how did you tune it? We recorded it. (laughs) What do you mean? If it was out of tune, cut it again. You know, you go on, and if it takes all day, that's what it takes, you know. I, Rather than use the the tricks and the toys.
0: Speaking of the tricks and the toys, have you become more of a sonic architect than you've ever Not been?
2: Really, my my son Will, who's a who's an amazing musician, is a Berkeley grad, a great producer. He, he's into the Ableton situation. He really is orchestral when he when he puts stuff together, you know. And I, you know, I've got I've got a Pro Tools rig, and but I got I got some fake drums that I use until I replace them with real ones. Yeah. I got, you know, uh, you know, a keyboard bass that I use. Sometimes I'll keep, you know, it's a pretty good sound in keyboard bass, move bass, that kind of thing. Uh, uh, guitars, uh, you know, I run through guitar rig, which is, you know, it's got enough sounds to make me happy. So I got all of those situations, but I usually kind of keep to regular, in, you know, normal instruments. My focus is really singer and song. And kind of always has been. Uh, I'm not that much about, Hey, look at, you know, I can, I'm, it's, what is it like? Sound design is not my scene. I see. You know, if I need, I mean, I got one song, uh, uh one song on the new album where I really kind of needed some help with, you know, putting strings and stuff on. So I gave the thing to Steve Precaro and let him have his way with it. And, uh, it was just, you know, that guy knows how to do that. I mean, that's what he did with Toto for 5 million
0: years, you know? Yeah. He's a great musician
2: you know, oh. a good friend.
0: Yeah, it seems like you've like you really have kept and maintained friendships that you've had oh, in this business. Yeah. Oh yeah,
2: yeah. Well, my last album actually was was me and my wife Tamara, who's as good a songwriter and singer as anybody I know. This ain't Paul and Linda by any means. This is a, she's the real deal uh when i need to when i need help writing a song she's she comes through like crazy and vice versa if she needs me i got a certain thing i can do that i'm good at writing you know dealing with the english language and uh she comes up with these great concepts and, and uh, premises so we we work together an awful lot and uh, uh that's kind of what makes it go i think at this house anyway i mean if i need a if i need a jazz ball piano player i get will to play it and he didn't. He didn't want to be known as a jazz player because he's he really does a lot of really straight ahead stuff, and he's a world class singer. I mean, he was uh, he was a uh, finalist in one of the Voice uh, uh, seasons on the, on the TV show The Voice, and he was the spoiler. He he kicked everybody's ass right up to the last minute. <laughs> Smoking. He's got a bachelor of arts degree from Berkeley School of Music. I've got a BA and in music, which is basically a bad attitude. <laughs> That's another one Foster said, hey, Champlin, you got a BA in music, a bad attitude. I said, well, it beats on a bare ass, I guess.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> Tell me about David Foster. He 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 seems like a really ferocious collaborator. He seems like a guy who really gets in the pocket, knows what he wants. Yeah. Um, can he take a note? Is he a guy you can collaborate in that way with? or Or is he terrifying? Well, I have over the years.
2: I mean, I, 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 Foster and I worked together a lot before he became David Foster. You know, what yeah. I mean? and it was, and I always just say, man, I worked with Foster when he gave a shit. You know, it, which he actually does. I mean, David, David is just one of those guys. He knows things that work. When you write with David, I think one of the things that's so good about him is he's he's such a natural arranger, and of you know, world-class piano player. He's probably the best pop player on the earth. Greg Matheson said that. David's the best pop piano player on the earth, period, bar none, right off the top. And uh, as a producer, I mean, there'd be points where every producer has their ups and then their downs. And in his downs, what always brought him back was these. Uh. His hands always brought him back. And uh, writing with David is insanely great. I mean, he's just a, uh, he's just got such great musical ideas that it just, you know, he just keeps you really engaged.
0: Do you always have musical ideas? Are you, is your brain always in the game or are there days or weeks that go by where you're not thinking about it?
2: Yeah. I, I've done a lot of running into walls cause I'm thinking about a bridge. <laughs> Tamara <laughs> calls it the Billy ballet. Whoops! <laughs> I just knocked something. I tripped over something in the house. What a chair. Watch where you're going, and I'm off in off in no, La La Land, trying to come up with something. And and I was just thinking about it the other day. I said, man, that's all I do. See, all I know how to do is music, you know. And I don't know how, you know. And I look around, and believe me, I'm aware of how good some people are at some of the things that I do. Like, st- I do a lot of vocal stacking. I'm really known for stacking up vocal parts. You know, I'll sing tenor, alto, and soprano. Do them all. And uh, I'm known for that. And then along comes Jacob Collier. Whoa, whoa, boy, you know. Or take six, and I'll, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of people that really, you know, a lot of people go, well, Bill, you're kind of jazzy sometimes. Well, if I have to be, I can I can hunt and peck the notes. I I don't know what the chord, you know, it's a demented thirteenth. I don't know what that is necessarily, because in that sense, I'm still a dumb blues singer. But I've been around this stuff so much that I that I can go. Oh, okay. Let me do this. And it's, but I I'm aware there's there's people out there that do it so much better than I do. And I I finally went. You know, what do you have? I said, what you know that that somebody else doesn't have better, and my personality, my thing that I do. And uh, you know, sometimes I get sick of it, but I don't think other people do. I think it's one of the one of the things. About when it you know it's not I'm never bored, but a lot of times I I you know there's a style that that I you know at least in the studio that I seem to have kind of fallen into a little bit, and it's nothing wrong with a style. It's your uh, it's like your personalized license plate, some like Right, yeah. right.
0: It's it's the thing that you do, and so yeah. right. Um, are there when you listen to a song, and it seems like you really do keep up with the landscape of what's going on currently. Um, oh Tamara,
2: tamra more than i do she really keeps you know there's
0: some singers out there there's this
2: kid that sings with fallout boy this guy's got iron pipes i mean i saw a show and it was an hour and a half he was singing right up in the hard hard edge he's singing up there all night never out of tune dead on the money and clean as a whistle the whole time i mean i'm just going whoa this guy's amazing uh but you know there's a handful of singers out there that are kicking Ass, and you don't even really know who they are. I don't know what that kid's name is, but boy, can he sing! He's amazing. I remember years ago, I was uh, I wasn't in, in Chicago. I didn't really know that much about Chicago, and I was driving, and I, and I heard the number two and the number one songs in the country. And then and the number two, I think at the time, was Isley Brothers, "Living for the Love of You," and the number one at that time was "If You Leave Me Now" by Chicago. And I went, I just heard two, and they played one after another. And I I just heard two of the best singers in the world. I don't know who they are. So I did some checking and I found out, you know, Peter Zotero was the Chicago tenor. And uh, Ronnie Isley was the guy singing for uh, the Isley Brothers. And Ronnie's ridiculous. I mean, that guy, God. I remember Jason Sheff one time said, who can I listen to to in the tenor range that should be good. You mean besides Ronnie Isley? <laughs> <There's>, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, there's nobody else. You know, I mean, Curtis Mayfield, and a lot of different, you know, higher range singers that have always been good, Smokey, and different you know, people like that. But Ronnie, you know, the Isley Brothers had a number one record in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and in 2003, they had a number one album. Mm. How's that for smoking, you know?
0: That's burning pretty hard. You know? That's yeah. That's about as as smoking as it gets. And, and that that's was- all. And that's all about
2: that guy's singing more than anything else. Just he's he's just an amazing
0: singer. Yeah, yeah. And and so that so Peter Cetera had not been on your radar until that moment.
2: Well, not particularly. I mean, I heard the first couple of albums, and I and I, I wasn't real. I mean, I was going, hey, you know, this is a horn band. They they released a double album pretty much the same day as the Sons released a double album and i listened to him and I, and I kind of went well this is cool this is cool uh i've thought of lamb as being a little bit clubby little you know buddy greco uh kind of kind of singer terry Calf killed me he's a great singer and this guy up on the top whoever the hell that is that guy's got some stuff you know you could just tell this first of all he's got range i mean he's you know he, he can sing pretty high but he just carries this insanity, uh, uh, pitch and, uh, and forward motion thing. in his voice is just insane. He's one of the best singers on the earth and uh, good friend, too. he's a good guy.
0: Yeah. Oh, I imagine. Um, tell me a little bit about your, your love affair with black music with, um, growing up in the era that you did, um, being a Bay area guy. There's a lot of music. What about a
2: lot of driving from Marin County over to Berkeley to Reed's records
0: oh beats records to
2: buy records that I, that i that i'd heard on kdia remember kdia 1320 am radio and they had they used to have their uh their tower with their transmitter right next to the the toll booth of the bay bridge that's right on the Oakland side. remember that oh yeah and i just i just grew up in the morning i listened to george oxford i listened to all these different guys and they they were you know, latimore had a had a number one hit on that station of stormy monday you know, I mean, who, who, who thought that was going to be a hit? But it was just so different that, I mean, and I just, I became aware of a lot of people and, and listening to that station, I became aware of Lou Rawls and I really had to check that out. You know, I had a sax player one time tell me, he says, there's only 12 notes. Go ahead and steal. Steal from everybody. Don't steal from one guy. Steal from everybody. And, you know, if you hear something that Lou Rawls did this morning, cop it figure out how to play it, how to play it, how to sing it, you know, make it yours. And then if you hear Willie Nelson doing something in the afternoon that you like, cop that. Eventually, all of those things will, will you'll forget where you got it, it's just there. And you kind of start putting those kind of things together, next thing you know, you got yourself, you, really your own style, your own thing. And I've listened closely to this guy, the guy's name was Larry Randall, played in the, kind of a Las Vegas, group called the big beats and, and it was a it was a great great bit of advice to a young kid you know it just keep stealing and there's tw- like Quincy Jones said it one time he says, there's only 12 notes I think of it that way yeah it's how you how you sing those any of those 12 notes is what makes you you. So, yeah and I and Donna said one time I said, Bill, you're the best known unknown the best known unknown singer on the earth. <laughs> I said, well, that's good, I guess. <laughs> How- Cash in on not being known, you know what I mean <laughs> How was Donna
0: was she, was she just an amazing singer?
2: Donna was cool. She was kind of doing the same the same kind of you know same kind of things. she I think she got a little bit caught up in Georgio wants it this way or or you know the producers want to kind of thing and she did it well and then uh worse hard for the money i think uh, uh, michael lomardian produced that one uh, but she was kind of in that thing and then at some point of the game i think in the last maybe 5 years she passed away but i heard a thing the other day somebody somebody posted tom Hemby played on this on this song and it was it was as funky as tina turner Donna had the, she had the goods. She was a sweetie pie. I mean, a lot of people thought of her as like a heavy diva and and the other thing, which she may have been, but to me, she was always a really sweet woman. I liked her a lot.
0: In terms of growing up in the Bay Area, like you and I did, when something like, and I still can't figure this out. Um, maybe you can explain to me. When, when I think about someone like Sean Fogerty and I think about Credence,
2: yeah.
0: like they were so singular and so bizarrely unique um, for being a Bay Area band, sounding like nobody else. Yeah. Um, what, what was your take on them? I, I kind of
2: knew them a little bit. They were a little standoffish. John's always been a little bit that way. So I didn't really get to know them very well when that was all going on. But they had, uh, they brought the Delta to the East Bay, is what they yeah. did. You know, I was talking with, uh, I, once again, I was talking with Jason Sheff. We were on a bus ride somewhere. And he said, well, you know, uh, Creedence came from Memphis, didn't they? I said, no, they're from Berkeley, California. He said, but they sound like Memphis, so I think John really uh, picked off what made Memphis happen. You know what made Memphis go? And Memphis, the uh, music that came out of there was pretty cool. I mean, the, uh, aside from Elvis, obviously Elvis, Johnny yeah. Cash, and Sun Records, but across the uh, across town was Stax Volt. Another story. Big story right there, and I think a lot of what made Stacks vote happen was half white, half black. It was one of the few things that really kind of put two of those two kind of musicians together. I mean, Booker T and the MGS was the backup band for most of those artists. Steve Cropper produced a lot of those artists, and uh, uh, Duck Dunn and Steve Cropper were the white guys in Booker T and the MGS, and uh, Al Jackson Jr. and uh, and uh booker himself were the black guys in that band and that was a really kind of a cool there was just two different approaches what really made it really touchable uh you know and the god i remember where i was and what i was doing the first time i heard otis It's like oh my god there's a guy you can't cop all you can do is just enjoy you know yeah and i was looked at i was looked at ray charles that way I'm, i'll never try to sound like ray charles would be stupid
1: <laughs>
2: Billy Joel pulled it off pretty well, but uh, it wasn't, it wasn't kind of down my alley. <laughs> he said, well, I'll stick with a Lou Rawls thing. It might be better. Yeah. How was, how was Fogarty as a singer? He's really good in, in his range. He's a monster. You know, he's a great singer.
0: Yeah. By the way, his voice in a really weird way, it sounds untouched by time. Like he, he yeah. didn't blow it out. No.
2: no. Right. He did. I mean, McCartney's another one of those guys. I went and saw this, the show at the Candlestick Park. It, it may have been one, five, six years ago. It was the last show at the stick. That's what they called it, right? I remember. And the, and the last rock show that had been at the stick was the Beatles' last show. That's right. High. So it was kind of a cool thing. There were 75,000 people there, big, giant speakers. And, and, you know, that guy did 35 songs all in the original key. Never took a drink of water. Never. I mean, I saw him maybe chewing gum just to keep some moisture going. Yeah. Uh, he never took a drink of water and he was on the stage for the whole, what, three and a half hours. Like a Grateful Dead gig, you know what I mean? Just up there forever, you know? And, you know, you would think that he would have left and thrown an, an instrumental out or, you know, t- gone to take a pee or something, anything like that. And, uh, and But never took a drink of water. And Tamron knows the uh, the guitar player and just kind of hit him up on Facebook and said, just saw the show, it was insane great, beautiful. Band was great, everything was was screaming, what's the story with no water? And he says, well, first of all, he wrote it back to, well, first of all, he's not of this planet. which <laughs> was a pretty cool thing to say. And second of all, I think one time he had a drink of water and he went to sing and he burped. And uh, he's enough of a per- perfectionist and went, that ain't gonna happen again. I'm <laughs> not gonna do that again. Pretty amazing singer and, you know, another one of those guys. One, two notes, you know who it is. Instantly. Yeah. you. I've listened to, the, you know, I got satellite radio and they, every once in a while they do the top 100 Beatles songs. And the one thing that's consistent through all of it, even in the very early days where they were just kind of a rockabilly band, if you want to call it, the bass playing was ridiculous. The, his note choice on, on on his bass playing, I didn't even notice it at the time, I didn't pay attention to it. And now I'm listening to it going, God, this guy's an amazing bass player. He's like the Mark King of that era, you know I mean? He's just hes just so good. His note, there's not a bad note in place anywhere. And at some point, the, the Beatles started stacking their own stuff. I mean, you can hear Lennon is singing with Lennon, when he was singing with Lennon, he was singing with Lennon. But Paul's playing bass on almost everybody's thing all the way through. And that was the one guy that, it really kind of remained consistently one of the players on their records all the way through. It was Paul, Paul McCartney's bass playing. A bad boy, a serious, great
0: musician. Yeah. And, and you know, like Mark King. Aside from
2: being a big star and not, yeah. you know, underneath yeah. all that, there's a reason for it.
0: You know? Yeah. And it, you know, Mark King is one of those guys where um, he's such a virtuoso and you think of him in that way, yeah. but McCartney is a very quiet virtuoso. Yeah. Right.
2: Well, you know, like we were talking before, I mean, Mark King can do all the, what, what Huey Lewis calls party slapping, you know, thumbing, thumbing the that and stuff like that. It's not Paul Styles, not the way he goes. He plays with a pick sometimes, plays with a, plays with fingers sometimes. Usually he's a pick player, but my God, he pulls it off. You yeah. know? And it's just so, just the right notes at the right time, the layout at the right time. It's just like what we were talking about earlier about why, you know, no, you know just find the right note for the right place and just put it there. And uh, he's he's one of the you know one of the teachers of that for I think of, you know generations of musicians.
0: Now you were saying you're always thinking about music. Are you always playing it? Do you play every day?
2: Not every day, you know. But I, when I do, when I get in the studio, like we're working on a song that Tamara and I uh, and a friend of hers, Michael Caruso, wrote together and with song for tamara basically i mean i just finished an album so at this point in the game i'm kind of knocking off some stuff to, to you know trying to set some stuff up for tamara because she really deserves a good record simple as that you know something that she can just play and go well this is pretty much me i mean she's had a solo album but it's been a lot of years yeah so uh, uh we, we you know for two days i'm in there slamming you know you know, start off with a click track, go to the piano, add, start adding, start building up on the song and, you know, like Jason Sheff said, painting the picture, start paint. to, start to paint, you know, and, uh, and then we, you know, just started to get her to do vocals on it and now that I got a little, you know, lead vocal in it, it's right, I know there's a few more things I need to do on guitar and maybe uh i don't think maybe even some vibes but you know or a vibes patch of some kind for some of this might be real cool so yeah, i've been working on that when that's really done i'm not gonna do anything you know the only music i'm gonna listen to is the commercials on television <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm gonna be let us see what are you playing today remote control you know because there's a point where you just got to clear it out you know yeah otherwise the ideas that you had on song number one you're going to bring to song number two and you want to kind of put a little bit of a, a a wedge in between them. That's like when I was doing a lot of vocal dates, and at one point I was doing a lot of vocal dates. I would go in, you know, you would sing the the guy's, the, you know, the artist would have a song and, and we'd go in with, with the background singers and sing the title of the song 400 times in a day for all the doubles and triples and all the other stuff. And then leave and go home and try to write a song and next thing you know I'm writing his song so I had to learn to learn that when I want by the time I got to my car I forgot what I, you know I learned to forget what I'd just done right. otherwise my writing career would be gone I'd just be writing what I what I sang today so I've I kind of learned over the years just put a little little slice take a day do nothing go walk on the beach do something else you know reset it. Yeah, just reset, let it reset a little bit and then go right after the next one and start building that up.
0: Is it, do you ever do a thing where you'll just jam with Will or jam with your wife and see if ideas happen? Or is it best to do that stuff alone and then bring it to the table?
2: For me, it's usually better alone. I'll, I'll, a lot of times I'll just say, I mean, we've, you know, just watching TV or something and I just, I keep a guitar in in the the bedroom. I must pick up a guitar and start picking away at something just for the sake of having fun, just to play. And Tamil go, whoa, what's that? Let's do something with that. Boom. And then whatever I was jamming immediately said, well, this is this is going to be the basis for the song. Normally, playing free is usually where the first part of that comes from. First part of the song is somewhere in that free playing, you'll get it. I, I wrote a song with with Randy Goodrum for a CWF album. It was supposed to be for Al Girobe, but it that ended up not happening because Al passed away. But uh, a song called Evermore. And I just had, I was, we were about to go to dinner and I was just playing piano while Tamara was putting on makeup or something. And I started playing this little chorus and she came around the corner with her, with her, uh, you know, she didn't tell me, but she recorded it. So we went to dinner and I came back and I says, I wonder what that was. And she went here. And, uh, and I brought it to Randy. Randy says, you just brought me a Cadillac of a chorus. I mean, it was really just a, a really great chorus. Not nothing, you know, nothing jazz ball, nothing really to jump up and down about. But it just had that some kind of thing that really made it great. It's on, uh, it's on CWF one. Uh, you know, which is Champlin, Williams, and Freestep. Freestep's a guitar player, producer. Joe Williams is uh, is Toto's singer and uh, and me. So we put it on that on that one. I actually, had Will Will do a lot of the arranging on it.
0: So, when you, you don't put pressure on yourself artistically, you, you've you learned to sort of let the ideas come organically. Try to. Yeah.
2: Yeah. You know, I think somebody else said one time, or it might have actually been me, but that, you know, uh, there's, I, I think I got an argument at, at one time, I saying, hey man, well this is a craft which is occasionally becomes an art. And Robert Land's like, no, it's an art. It's an we're artists. It's an art. So not when you not when you're first starting, but I think I said the thing is that you really gotta do when you think about it, the art that has lasted the longest is, you know, archaeologists have found a, a jar that somebody was keeping rice in, but they drew something on the outside of it, or painted something on the outside of the jar, and that's hanging that's been around longer than Picasso. And people are still going, it's so beautiful, you know, or cave paintings, you know, uh, and, and it's just, uh, what's you, if, you, if you spend as much time as you can dealing with your craft, you know, with tuning the thing, um, somebody said, what do you like better singing or guitar playing? I said, I look at it as all the same, mm. you know, for me, putting on a new set of strings is the same as coming up with a lyric you know, it's all part of the same situation. It's the same thing. It's just what you do. And if you do your craft, you have a better chance of art come out, coming out of it. If you do it regularly, you know, and just, just keep, you know, it's a craft and it's just like making shoes or anything else. You just do it, you do it and do it and boom. Whoa, what's that? You know, I was writing a song, Bruce Geich and, uh, and Janie uh, Kluwer had written these, this track. It was just a track. And I said, so, "Man, I like this track. The chorus is—you know—the the choruses are good. The the chord progressions different than a lot. And uh, and this thing, uh, and I just sort of started writing it. And I was out in the studio. Tamara said, "Yeah, let's go to dinner." I said, well, "What do you think of this?" So I did it, and and at the uh, at right at the chorus, I went, uh, just came up with a thing uh, called. He started to sing of love, just to find it, and she went, "Oh my God, that's the story of every singer on the earth." And I didn't, even know, I didn't even know it, but it just kind of came flying out of me while I, was, while I was writing this song. It was a little bit of an introspective song, but it kind of hit the, hit, the, hit the thing, man. It really worked pretty well, you know?
0: Anyway. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's also one of those things where, like, I, I teach college, and I've done it for a long time. And there are times where I go into the classroom and I go, I am just doing this. I know what, I, I'm not even, it's paint by numbers right now. And so I realized like I need to always challenge myself to make this new. So every day I don't just rest on my laurels or on my experience and I make it something new and different. So I challenge myself, for example, I use different books every semester. I'm not, I'm not going to do the same stuff.
2: No, no. Um, you'll you'll end up getting stuck in a, you know, a groove is one thing until it turns into a rut.
0: Exactly. There you go. So how do you avoid the rut? How do you make it new for you? And not, and not just resting on your laurels and doing what you're comfortable doing.
2: Well, I don't really... To speak of, I, I never think of the fact that I even have any laurels to rest on. <laughs> I know with Chicago, everybody wanted me to rest on their laurels. I went, nah, no. <laughs> hey, man, believe it. Dig it. You're a rock star. No. I'm a musician. Remember uh, My Favorite Year with Peter O'Toole? He says... I'm not an actor. I'm a movie star. You know, it's for me, it's the other way around. I'm not a movie star. I'm an actor. <laughs> I kind of like, you know, doing it just straight ahead and keep it straight. You know what I mean? Just the nature of the nature of the beast. Yeah. Have you? But, uh, yeah. I mean, if if I feel like I'm in a rut at that point in the game, it's time to it's time to to really try to you know shake it all up, take put it in a box, shake it like that, and then open it and see what happens.
0: Have you ever picked up an instrument that you've been curious about, but is that a good way to do it as well? Like, I'll pick up the oboe and oh, see yeah. what
2: happens. I mean, every time I get a new, every time over the years that I've gotten a new synthesizer or something that has different sounds, three or four songs are gonna come out of it because I'm gonna go, wow, that, you know, it's something that'll, that'll kind of inspire me to do something different. We're, we're getting this record out and it's called Living for Love and uh, I really hope you, you know, grab it and dig it because I, I think you'll understand more what I'm saying if you hear
0: what I'm playing. I dig everything you do, man, Um, and I'm excited that you came on the show. And I appreciate your time. Well, thank you, man. Good, good to talk to you. It was you're really a kick,
2: man. It's fun. You you ask the right questions and do the right things. It's all happening. Plus, you, you got a good sense of humor, man. That's a must. That's the main thing. People say, "Hey, how do you stay in the business?" I try to keep laughing as much as I can. You know, yeah. The it all really is kind of stupid.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, the alternative to laughter is not a pleasant thing. Yeah, I hear you talking. Bill Champlin, great guy. Just a really terrific, terrific fellow to talk to. Uh, just so much knowledge and um, so willing to talk about anything. Guns and Roses, Donna Summer, Al Jarreau. And I don't know if this is true. You can check on it. But I think that's the first conversation to ever reference Fallout Boy and Ethel Merman. Bill's awesome. His new album, Living for Love, it's amazing. Go get it. BillChamplin.com. Order it there. Uh, it'll be out in a week or two. But go get it now. You'll believe me. You'll be happy you have it. You can visit me at alexgreenonline.com. Follow me on Twitter at Embers editor, Follow me on Instagram at emberspodcast, Or just email me, editor, at StereoEmbersMagazine.com. Stereo Embers, the podcast, is available at all podcast platforms. Go to the one that you use. Subscribe. Leave us a rating. Maybe, you know, a nice comment or two. That wouldn't hurt. Tell a friend, have them tell their friends, check on them to make sure that they've told all their friends, Uh, and uh, let's get the word out about the podcast. One person at a time is my theory, and uh, who doesn't like a friend saying, remember that thing I recommended to you? Well, did you do it yet? Come on. Uh, Let's close the show. By the way, thank you as always for listening to the podcast week in and week out. We love that you do. And we appreciate it very, very much. Uh, Let's close the show with a longer listen to Bill Champlin's new single, Reason to Believe, from his album, Living for Love. Enjoy it. And I'll see you next time right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast only on Bombshell Radio. Round
1: and round and round I seem to go. Would I ever stop? No. I was spinning on an endless carousel In a state of shock Then there was a way you me Knowing that it's wrong.